If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue um, to walk through the book of Matthew. I played soccer for over 25 years, and it was my dad that instilled the love for the game in me. My fondest and actually earliest memories of my childhood revolve around a soccer field. My dad wasn't a professional player by any means. I think he actually started playing very late into his teens. So my love for the game wasn't a generational thing because my dad didn't force me to play. But I genuinely loved watching him and I couldn't wait to be out on the field with him. Soccer was everything to me. I spent hours upon hours out in the field just playing and having fun. But as I got older, I realized that in order to continue to play and keep up, I needed to improve. Being fast and being able to kick the ball hard were not going to be good enough in the long haul. And there comes a time where our, in our childhood, our childhood abilities kind of plateau and everyone is kind of like at the same skill level. And something just clicked in me. I was consumed with getting better. Now, I'm not proud of this, but in school, I would just do the bare minimum, meaning that I would just do enough to average a 2.0, just C's, so that I can have more time and energy to play. Training and playing was all I ever wanted to do and invest my time in. Something that is known among athletes across the spectrum of sports is that talent isn't enough. The difference between being good and being able to compete at a high level is hard work. The work that I'm talking about are the long hours in the gym, hours of training alone on the field, the sacrifices of dieting, the work that goes unseen. This is one of the things that sets professional athletes apart. There are levels, even in being a professional athlete, there are levels to it. In other words, there are levels because of the dedication of work that each individual puts in. It's well documented that athletes like Tom Brady when he was playing and LeBron James who's still currently playing invest over $1 million a year into their bodies to reach and maintain these high levels of performance. We even have examples of Michael Jordan and Kobe when they play spending long hours in the gym working and perfecting their craft. Serious athletes invest their money in at least three key areas, in trainers, nutrition, and recovery. Now it's curious that professional athletes, people who have invested hundreds of hours into perfecting their craft, would enlist an outside resource to achieve new heights. As an athlete, you need to work on your weaknesses so that you can be a well-rounded player in your field. This is what ultimately sets people apart. The ability to know and understand our, um, your tendencies, your weaknesses, and to be able to kind of correct them. A trainer may not make a professional athlete significantly better but the, and the impact that they might have on an individual is minimal 
It's measured in increments of small percentages. But the outside look and the perspective that they provide, the pointing out to things that can be unseen by the athlete themselves, is precious. The trainer can point out areas where the athlete might overcompensate due to a weakness. As an athlete, it is important to know what your strengths are, but it's almost just as important, if not more, to be aware of what your weaknesses are as well. And it's no different for us as followers of Jesus. There is an innate weakness that if gone unnoticed, we can tend to overcompensate for. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul in his letters to the Corinthians used the metaphor of an athlete to compare the life of a follower of Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 through 27, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So before we look at what actual training looks like for us as followers of Jesus, and how the disciplines help us as followers of Jesus, it's important that we must first take a look at what the weakness is that exists in every single human heart. So if you're with me, let's turn to chapter 2 in the book of Matthew. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the, re during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Jerusalem, um, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? The second character that we come across in this chapter is King Herod. Right, the last few weeks, in the, uh, we've, we've, we talked about the Magi, these wise men, and how they represent the grace of God. So today and then the weeks to come, we're going to talk about King Herod. King Herod is not just added to the story to just kind of give us historical context, but to bring to light the brokenness that exists deep in the human heart. King Herod brings awareness to the condition of the human heart. King Herod is not just the villain in this story, although he does do some horrific things. But ultimately, he shows us the human need for Jesus. King Herod is introduced in this first verse. The historical um, importance is because he's a leader of the Jewish people, God's people. He's a king. He's a king of the nation. But notice what happens when the wise men make their intentions known as to why they're there. Right? They're there to worship a new king of the Jewish people. And he's troubled by this. He's shaken up. 
he's troubled by this because those words, they strike him and they almost shatter his reality. And the new reality is, is ushered in. A reality where he is no longer a leader, the king. Jesus is. His kingdom is being taken away from him. He's being dethroned as a king and replaced by a king who's a baby. Jesus. His reaction is the deep, raw, and natural rebellion that exists in every single human heart to the kingship of Jesus. In other words, Believing and accepting that Jesus is king of our lives means a rejection of ourselves being the center of attention. Means that the world does not revolve around us. This is the tension in which we live in, deep down in our hearts. Accepting Jesus as our Savior and following Him means to live our lives submitting to the ways that he lays out for us. And this is something that simply doesn't come natural to any of us. It is no longer I do as I wish and I want. Following Jesus and accepting him as our king and our savior is I do as he says and he leads. This resistance, this rebellion that lives deep within us, whether we're aware of it or not, is what we call original sin. Original sin is the self-centeredness, the selfishness that exists deep within all of our hearts. In the beginning, starting in the book of Genesis, starting in the Garden of Eden, all of life was dependent on the Creator, God the Father. Man was created and actually lived in harmony with God. There was a mutual relationship. There was a union between God and man. It was a God-centered existence. It was a life fully dependent and centered around God. Everything that Adam and, and, and Eve did was an act of worship in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because God was present. So when Eve was tempted, she was free to brush off the suggestions that the serpent had laid out. She had the choice. But in that split second, when she started to think about what the actual serpent was suggesting, her heart lost focus on God. And in that moment, it opened the door to focus on herself, and both her and Adam chose to disobey. It was a deliberate rejection of God's love, and they chose freely to turn away from God to the self. Think about that. 
Let's make it a little bit personal. The temptations that we struggle with that face us day to day, when we think about them, when we ponder about them, when we really think about what they're suggesting to us, it makes us lose our focus and our sights on God when all we do is focus on the temptation. That is why 99% of the time we fall. Because we lose our sight on Jesus by thinking about him, by contemplating it, by letting him fester. Look at the words of Martin Luther. Man is not able by nature to want God to be God. Indeed, he wants himself to be God. And he does not want God to be God. Right? A pioneer in the Reformation. He talks about this that exists in the human heart. Our human nature is always bent towards the self. We naturally look to take care of ourselves, to get what we want, to fulfill any and every desire that's in us, which by definition takes us away from God. It takes us away from God being the center, the provider, and the sustainer of our lives. I'll give you a live and breathing example. If you've ever been around a toddler... They will let you know by kicking, by screaming, by yelling, by throwing things, what they want, what they need. But as adults, we're no different than them, if you really think about it. Think about a relationship, a close relationship. When you don't get what you want or or they don't meet your expectations, we have a tantrum. We freak out. We yell. Our anger comes out. We might not throw things. We might not kick and scream. But we shut down. Or we say things to hurt the other person. Right? It's the selfishness inside of us. It's that self-centeredness that lives inside of us. Now, that selfishness, that self-centeredness is more than just our actions. Because a lot of the time we think that sin is behavioral. And it is. But our behavior is always a symptom of something deeper. Our behavior is always a symptom of something deeper. We're going to specifically talk about this in in the weeks to come. Now, you might not have an addiction. You might not have a deliberate um, secret sin that's always pulling at you. But that sinfulness, that self-centeredness can also, it also manifests itself in worry. When we're stressing out all the time, when we're anxious, when we dwell in shame, when we live with guilt, or simply when we isolate ourselves and cut everyone, any sort of help, any sort of community around us. Look at the words of, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. 
All of us used to live that way, talking about uh, people who were unbelievers, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Like, we're not exempt from that. And even in the Bible, we can see the plague of this self-centeredness, of the selfishness that exists in the human heart. Even those closest to Jesus, Peter, John, Judas, where Peter and John are kind of competing to see who's the most favored amongst the two. Or even amongst the disciples, like when uh, one of the moms comes and says, um, forgetting with disciples, but he comes and says, hey, can they sit at your right hand? And then Jesus has to say, hey, it's not for me to decide, that's for the Father. Or even Judas, right? Very early on, he began to want to take care of his own financial needs, so he would steal a little bit from the pot of their ministry. Or even Peter stepping in, being anxious, and telling Jesus, no, no, you're not going to suffer. It's almost like saying, we've suffered long enough. You're exempt from that. But even the Apostle Paul, the great apostle who wrote almost 50% of the New Testament, talks about the sinfulness that exists in his heart. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, 19, and 24. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyways. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? We often think that our rebellion is shown through our actions. But the depth of our rebellion is unseen. It's deep within our hearts. The flesh, the way that it's used, it's not just talking about the body. When the Apostle Paul talks about the flesh, it it encompasses so much more. The flesh means that whatever is within us that opposes God is sinful. Our thoughts, our feelings, some of those emotions. It's not just our actions. But it's those deep desires of our hearts. Again, our actions are just a symptom of something deeper. This rebellion is innate in all of us. This is our weakness. Our addictions, our anger, our anxiety, our shame, our guilt, all stem from this brokenness. It's from this place that our sinful behavior takes shape and it comes out exteriorly. It manifests itself through our actions. Because there's something in us that doesn't want to surrender 100% to Jesus. There's something in us that just doesn't fully trust that God will provide, that God will free us, that God will bring us our spouse, our significant other, that God will free us of of, of the loneliness. So we hang on. We hang on. Our hearts seek control and oftentimes attach themselves to things that promise security and fulfillment. And this edges God out of our lives because we're no longer focused on Him. 
We're focused on ourselves. Original sin is the reason why there's a distancing between us and God. Although King Herod represents the brokenness of the human condition, it's not so that we can walk out of here to feel guilt, shame. King Herod helps us see the condition of our hearts to reveal our need for Jesus. This is why we so desperately need Jesus every single moment of our lives. The brokenness of our human condition reveals our need for Jesus. God is love. And because we are made in his image, we are made to love as well. And in this love, we have freedom to choose. Because if there's no freedom, it's not true love. God can do everything except force us to love him. Therefore, in his desire for us to share in this love, in this relationship, in this union, he created us with the freedom of choice. We have the ability and the choice to love him and to love ourselves. Therein lies the mystery and the wonder of our faith. Which is why we will always be the prodigal son. Because that is our natural bend. And God is that loving father that even though we stray, even though we walk away... He will never stop loving us because he understands that in our choosing, we are choosing something other than him. But that doesn't mean that he stopped loving us. Even in this moment today, God could not love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. Despite of what you've done, despite of what you're doing. That is the wonder of his love. That is the great mystery of his love. That's what grace is because we don't deserve it. Yet he freely gives it. It's a beautiful thing, this faith of ours. And there's nothing in this world that our heart needs more than to be known and to be loved. And God, and through Jesus, is the only one that can give us that. This Orthodox, um, I'm reading this book, it's called The Orthodox Way, and I love his name, his Metropolitan Callisto's Way. This is what he says. He says, without freedom, there would be no sin. But without freedom, man would not be in God's image. Without freedom, man would not be capable of entering into communion, entering into a relationship with God, because it's a relationship of love. In order for us, in order for Jesus to be our reconciler, our healer, our savior, our king, we must come to terms with the conditions, the condition of our hearts, with the brokenness that exists. We're not perfect. Like athletes, 
we must be able to look at our sinfulness, right, our weaknesses, and invite the Holy Spirit to do its work in our lives. Because just like a professional athlete, they had to take the step and say, I am going to seek help because I cannot do this by myself. Even if it means that I'm going to pay for it. There's an investment. That is the invitation for us as followers of Jesus. Can we give God the time, the investment, and trust that He's going to create a place for, us to meet, for Him to meet us there? That is our part. To invite the Holy Spirit to do its work in our lives. That's why surrender is it's almost synonymous with discipleship, with being a follower of Jesus. Because when we surrender ourselves, for the, the Holy Spirit then is able to, to, to come in us and transform us from the inside. That is the work of a follower of Jesus. To always come to the altar, to come to the table. Our spiritual formation, the transformation of our hearts, is the unseen work take on. It's not exterior. It's always interior. It's in those spaces of surrender, of vulnerability, where Jesus not only meets us, but it's where he comes fully alive in our lives. This is our part. This is our work. To always be placing ourselves at the feet of Jesus, surrendering every part of ourselves to him. From the beginning, we were one with God. We were in close relationship with Him. We were one. But then, because of freedom that exists in His love, an original sin has separated us from being in union with Him. And now exists a gulf between us and God. So how do we bridge that gap? See, the spiritual journey, in the spiritual journey, one thing has always been true for all of us. And this is something that the, the, the saints of the faith always allude to, is that God has always led the way and been the one that's always moving towards us. It's not us moving towards Him. He's the one that's always moving towards us. His love is what compels Him to you. And grace is the bridge that brings these two polar distances back together. But the choice is still up to us. In God's love, there's freedom, and that freedom leaves the choice for us to accept His grace and begin to walk the path or to continue to do things our way, how we want to, what we desire. Returning to God happens through prayer. That's why prayer is such an essential piece of our existence, of who we are as followers and disciples of Jesus. But the prayer that I'm talking about, the prayer that actually begins 
that is the first step is called the prayer of confession. Confession is an acknowledgement of our brokenness. It's the cry of a broken heart that's tired of being alone and says, God, where are you? It's a heart that's tired of being hurt and says, God, where are you? It's the cry of a heart that's tired of working and putting up a front that is strong and says, God, where are you? Confession is a heart crying out to the Father saying, help me. Help me. This uh, pastor up in Portland, beautiful church, uh, Tyler Staten, he says, confession is how we turn to him. Look him in the eye and acknowledge his presence here with us. Not to judge, but to rescue. Our confession is not our defense statement in a court of law where we're waiting for the judgment of our rebellion. Where God is a judge ready to punish and give us our life sentence. I don't know. Confession is much more personal. It's much more intimate. It's an interaction with God as the Father. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 139. I'm going to start out with verse 1. This is David. Right? King David, a man after God's own heart. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And then he finishes it this way, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. A lot of us lie on that first part. God, you know me. So therefore, I don't need to confess. But that's the freedom that we've been talking about. He wants us to invite him into those deep parts of our lives. Which is why David finishes this. He says, God, show me, because I might be blind, so that I can talk to you about it, so that I can bring it to the light, so that I can have a moment of vulnerability and intimacy with you as my father. Because the Psalms are not so much God's words for his people, but they're more words full of emotion of, of a human heart towards God. So sometimes if, if you don't have the right words, that's why the Psalms can be so healing for us. Because they are words of the human heart towards God. David prayed these words to God. This psalm is actually a beautiful psalm because it, it, it weaves through the intricacies of his heart and through his confession. In most of the psalms that David writes, we, we, we find David being personal, honest, unfiltered, raw, and authentic before God. He was nowhere near perfect. But unlike Adam and Eve, he refused to hide. And through and in confession, he comes to the light, to the Father. He was vulnerable and chose to stand there with his heart wide open before God. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the psalm, but Psalm 52 was the psalm that he wrote right after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. But right almost in the middle of the psalm, he, he cries his heart out. And one thing that he asks for is this. He says, God, do not remove me from your presence or remove your spirit from me. That was his request. That was his request. It had nothing to do with wealth. It had nothing to do with, with, with um, victory or um, over enemies. It had nothing to do with that. It was simply, God, don't leave me. Friends, that is what our hearts ache for. And only Jesus can fulfill that. That's the crazy part about God's love. He actually embraced and met David there. God's grace becomes alive because it meets us in those tender and deep parts of our hearts. Think about it for a moment. Recall a time when you were so desperate. I'm talking tears, anger, frustration, heartache, and you cried out to God, where are you? Or a version of that question. How did you experience his presence and his embrace during that time? That is what I'm talking about. Look at this. Look at these words from Eugene Peterson. Right? He says, God does not deal with our sin by ridding ourselves as if it were a germ or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputating it as if it were a gangrenous leg, leaving us crippled. Holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us. And when he forgives us, there is more of us, not less. Let that sink in. The sinfulness in our lives is exactly where God wants to meet us. So maybe we need to stop praying for God to remove it. And maybe we need to start praying for strength to meet Him there. The pathway to death and intimacy has always been a descent, not an ascent. The road back to God is a downward spiral in which the Spirit of God meets us, changes us, transforms us, because we experience redemption in those lost parts of our souls. In closing, St. Augustine was a man who, before accepting Jesus into his life, did whatever he wanted, wherever he wanted, however he chose. There wasn't an earthly pleasure that he wasn't exposed to or took part in. 
But when he chose and accepted Jesus into his life, he knew that there were still some areas in which he desperately needed Jesus to heal him from. And these are probably some of his most famous words. Help me to know myself so that I can know you. When he spoke these words, he knew the importance to know what those areas are and were rebelling towards God. Because it was those areas where he could encounter him. Truly encounter the living God. Now, King Herod chose not to let go of his ways. He held on to the idea of his kingdom. What he felt he deserved. So it made, him hard. It, made it hard for him to accept Jesus. It made it difficult. His heart turned cold, bitter, and resentful. But Jesus invites us, when we let go, into a kingdom where there's fulfillment. Now, you might be hearing this message and you might be tired of doing something, of an addiction or a habit that you just feel keeps weighing you down. You might be tired because of the anxiety, the worry, the depression from the guilt and the shame that you've been plagued with. You might be tired of being the one that's holding things down and holding them together. But listen to this invitation from Jesus. I don't have it up on the, uh, on the screen because I just want, I want these words to just let them sink in. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my burden I give you is light. I want to invite you to take these next moments and just confess your heart. Let it go. Trust Him. And just see what happens. Lord, I pray a blessing of your spirit over all of us here today, Lord. That you would fill our hearts, Lord, that we would feel your love for us. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve your love, but you freely give it. We accept it, Lord, and we receive it. 
So Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen.